Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Shakespeare's Globe Theater is reinventing uh, the story of St. Joan of Arc. Uh, There's an upcoming production called I, Joan, in which the French Catholic heroine will be portrayed as a non-binary queer character who refers to herself with they, them pronouns. My guest is uh, medieval scholar Rachel Fulton Brown, associate professor of history at the University of Chicago. She specializes in the history of Christianity, medieval European religions, liturgy and prayer, and devotion to the Virgin Mary. And you can visit her blog at fencingbearatprayer.blogspot.com. We'll have that link for you at our site as well. Rachel, good to have you back. Thanks. Um, Thank you for having me. All this preoccupation with gender, and I know you're intimately familiar with it from your work in academia, Let's just start off by, from what you've written on it, you're bored by it, all this talk about gender. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, is it? I mean, it's a hot thing in academia, but you're bored by it. Why? Why? <laughs> well, it's been a hot thing in academia since I was in college, and that was some 30 years ago, 30, <laughs> 40 years ago. So, you know, if it's hot, it's a long-burning thing. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm bored with it because I think it misses the rapture of God's relationship with humanity, and I'm happy to talk deeply about that, but the, the you know, the primary thing that I've, I've said in my own scholarship is that, you know, we've been talking about gender, and we're missing the, the mystery of exactly why it's such a, a charged problem for us. Um, as human beings, we're, of course, made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, and sex is about our ability to, you know, make children. Um, And it strikes me that much of our conversation about gender in academia seems to miss that central mystery of fertility. Yeah. Conversation about gender likes to take place apart from conversation about sex. Is that right? Oh, yes. And, I mean, it's used as a kind of, you know, as we say in academia, interpretive lens, right? You'll be sitting in a paper that's been talking about something else, nationalism or, you know, theater or anything else, and, and someone will always come up with the thing, well, I think what we need to talk about now is gender. <laughs> and, and, you, and you know you know where the, the question is going to go, and it, it, it makes everybody uncomfortable when that topic is raised, because we're all, we also know that we're not going to be allowed to talk about it in any way that's actually dangerous. Yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's going to be very, very predictable exactly what kind, and that's what I see in this, this effort at the Globe to you know, make Joan of Arc edgy by saying she's non-binary and uses they. Well, there there are some beings that use plural pronouns of themselves, and in um, the story of the Gerizim um, demoniac, it's of course the demon. <laughs> we are legion. As, we are legion, yeah, right? So right. You know, if you're using a they pronoun, I think you need to examine a little bit carefully exactly which they you're you're focusing on. But the problem with the the play and with Joan and the sort of mystery is. It's this persistent desire to make it edgiest to show women in masculine characters, mm-hmm. and I, you know, sort of invite people to think about why that, why should, why should that be the edgiest thing to say women, women should be behaving in masculine ways when in the Christian tradition the edgiest thing that the human soul can be is feminine in relation with God. Right, right. There seems to be something just incoherent about this idea of trying to separate gender from sex. Would we have ever even conceived of a category called gender if we weren't already well aware 
of certain cultural outgrowths from the fact that we are male and female? Well, I think the, the power of the fact that we are male and female is what creates the, the frisson when people are talking about gender and, and potential gender crossing or, or gender fluidity or gender confusion. I mean, it's a very, very ancient sort of mystery that mm-hmm. shamanism, for example, is caught up usually in gender changes. Or I've d- I did a blog post this summer on the rainbow imagery that we were invited to meditate on in June. Um, <laughs> um, and the, you know, the sort of prevalence of this, this sort of desire to blend with the light and take on all genders. I think, I think what it's showing, what it shows to me in people's curiosity and terror is, in fact, the, the great mystery of our real power as male and female. Um, and, the, and the mystery and the gendering is, is a sort of a unwillingness to take on the, the terror of what it means to become a parent. Hmm. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and so we, you know, we've been told by feminists, and this, this happened, you know, from my first days in, in college in the, in the 80s, that, you know, God is bad if he's, if he's a patriarch. Well, you know, this, this is saying God made us creatures to be able to make, you know, other creatures to, to come together as male and female and become parents. And that is a, that is a pretty frightening thing. It's like yeah. you, you've not only become responsible for a whole other being, but what did you just do? Yeah. You had sex and there's another, there's an, a whole other human being? Yeah. That's amazing. Yes. And so, you know, gender, I think, is, is constantly avoiding that, the real terror of, oh my goodness, we are part of this glory of life. And we are very, very, very responsible in that glory. For those who take gender uh, seriously as a mere social construct, don't they run into serious problems? Because when you get to the whole transgender issue, um, gender then becomes completely disconnected from sex and becomes merely something that you wish upon yourself. And so you're no longer connected to reality, you know, the, the most fundamental human created distinction, the distinction between male and female. Doesn't gender then become completely disconnected from the world God created? Well, it becomes fundamentally Gnostic, I think is yeah, the, the, yeah. the correct way to say that, it, that it's denying the, the bond between the body and the soul and the necessary relationship between our, our souls and our bodies. But the, I mean, the, the transgenderism, I, I think I'm focusing on fertility because it's, I, I think it's a, you know, there's a positive version of this desire to tap into this, this divine reality. And I, you know, I see transgenderism in a, a sort of long-term spiritual light. It's this, this longing to be somehow to, meld with with god right i i think it's it's a strange sort of power which is why it's so fraught for people that the you know the desire to step into this rainbow relationship with god and and to become you know sort of whatever we imagine i it is gnostic and it is it is divorcing ourselves from our incarnation but there's there's also it, it has the power that it does because that is also part of our recognition of the spiritual reality and i done some blog posts over the years on did the one on the rainbow recently um but some years ago did one on lies of the left gender fluidity mm-hmm. where i was i was thinking about this this problem of why exactly is this such an appealing sort of 
yeah. claim that, that we can change gender. Well, in, in the medieval Christian tradition, ancient medieval Christian tradition, you're reading the Song of Songs as the relationship between God and the soul, and in this relationship, the soul is feminine. The soul is the anima. It's a feminine character. She's the bride, and God is the bridegroom, the lover. Um, there's, you know, there's a sort of in, incredible power in, in seeing the masculine and feminine in, in the relationship between the divine and human. And, you know, monastic tradition from nuns to monks all use the Song of Songs in order to meditate on this mystery. And right. when monks do it, like Bernard of Clairvaux, mm-hmm. they take on the feminine character of, of the soul. And, and you know, for, to say that's, you know, that's a strange reading of the Song of Songs, isn't it just Christian? Well, um, another post I did much longer ago called Exercise for the Day, I talk about Andrew Greeley's meditation in his Sinai myth on the way in which Yahweh is described in the Old Testament as, and this is in Greeley's language, involved passionately yeah. with his people. Yeah. He offers them wildly passionate love and dismisses as perverted those who turn away in revulsion from such love. Yeah. So, you know, the I, I think compassion, we need to be compassionate for people who are, who are drawn into this, this transgender um, movement. But I think, you know, compassion in the sense that they are tapping into something in deep, deep, deep in our human experience, but to, to order it correctly so that we're not falling into the temptations of the demons to simply say we are they, right? We're, we're meant to be drawn into the church, which is also the bride, right. who also has this feminine relationship with God because he's passionately in love with his creatures. Medieval writers, you mentioned Bernard of Clairvaux and others, they're not ashamed of this passionate dimension it doesn't mean that they're thinking, talking about literal uh, genitalia here, but they are not afraid to talk about the sense of embodied love. And that's also connected to the spiritual passion they feel for union uh, with God. And they write, their meditations are actually would embarrass a lot of people if those passages were read during a uh, Sunday morning homily. So I think most of us don't understand this kind of spiritual passion, which is not ashamed to use the language of physical love. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about how the uh, writers, spiritual writers of the medieval period uh, understood the connectedness between um, our embodiedness in our maleness and femaleness, and our hunger for God. Well, my favorite—I um, wouldn't say character, he's a real person. <laughs> um, my favorite example of this is Rupert of Doit in his description of how he became—he came to be one of the greatest commentators on Scripture in the Middle Ages, and he had a, a series of visions uh, when he was a young man of sort of rapture and and relationship with God, and one of them is, is the one that he says, you know, gave him the, the um, it's like power, the insight, the, 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 the ability to write and write and write all his commentaries, and if I may just give you a, give you a little flavor of what he said. Sure. Um, this, this image, this, this experience is like, he says, I was lying on my bed at the close of the day, and I'd scarcely closed my eyes in sleep. When a figure in the likeness of a man, prone and uniformly extended, came down from above with only his face hidden, sinking down on me, he filled the whole substance of my soul, impressing me in a way that I can no wise describe in words, more swiftly and deeply than the softest wax 
is able to receive the strongly impressed seal. Hmm. Immediately, I was shaken out of the dream which had just come over me, and now wakeful, I sensed the sweet weight, wakeful as I was delighted. And what shall I say? My soul melted. That's Song of Songs 5-6. My soul, Lord, almost broke loose, almost poured out of my body. Indeed, it is true to say that if that sudden overflowing of holy pleasure had continued much longer, it would have by its very strength drawn the soul swiftly from the body like a torrent and carried it away. And after this, he says, I could not be silent. I had to, to, to write. I had to keep writing. Wow. Uh, Rupert, Rupert did a whole commentary on the Song of Songs in which he describes the bride as Mary, Our Lady, and uses this imagery also to explain her going out into the world and beginning to preach after she'd been filled with God and the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, the, 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 the mystery of the Incarnate is is at the core of this and i think you know our our current transgenderism is like it's a denial of the body um in the sense that you know the only way that you can fulfill your true self is through surgery which is is not um in the way in which you were made in the womb (laughs) um but but there is this this sort of confusion of you know what what does it say when the body doesn't seem to fit with the soul well i said the soul needs to fit with the body because we are incarnate beings and God made us to be incarnate and in body and soul in relationship with him in the way that Rupert describes. And what gender that that role takes, you know, is is our mystery of who we are in relationship with God. Very good. Rachel, thank you so much. Wonderful talking with you again. Thank you for having me. Dr. Rachel Fulton-Brown is Associate Professor of History at the University of Chicago, where she specializes in the history of Christianity Medieval European religions, liturgy, prayer, and devotion to the Virgin Mary. I'm Al Cresta.